0: Hello, everybody. I would like to welcome everyone to ATS's and uh, section on genetics and genomics podcast series. Today, our podcast will focus heavily on metabolomics, but will also touch on very relevant respiratory disease research. Metabolomics research as a whole is considered the youngest of the major omic fields, but in the past 15 to 20 years, uh, we have seen a significant rise in metabolomics research. This has been possible because of both technological advancements in instrumentation and development of bioinformatic tools needed to analyze these data. But let's also not forget the efforts of the research community to obtain the important samples for these omics analysis through large cohort initiatives. Today, we are fortunate to have a panel of metabolomics researchers who are well-established in both metabolomics studies, but also respiratory diseases that are very relevant to the ATS community. First, we have Dr. Jessica Lasky-Sue. She is an associate professor of medicine and associate statistician at Harvard Medical School in Brigham and Women's Hospital and a leader in the field of integrative metabolomics. Over the past two decades, she has focused on the analysis of genetics, genomics, and metabolomics data of various complex diseases with a primary focus on asthma and allergy over the past 15 years. She is currently the president of the Metabolomics Society the largest international society for metabolomics, acting chairman of the consortium of metabolomic studies, COMETS, and a governing board member of the metabolomics workbench. She recently co-founded the metabolomics Epidemi- epidemiology tax group within the metabolomics society to address the needs of metabolomics in an epidemiological framework. Next, we have Dr. Russell Bowler. He is a professor of medicine in the department of medicine Division of Pulmonary Medicine at National Jewish Health. He also served as the director of the Precision Medicine Program at National Jewish. Over the past three decades, in addition to caring for patients, he has had an active research program focused on studying genetics, genomics, proteomics, and metabolomics related to COPD. His research is supported by a number of large NIH-supported initiatives, including COPD gene, scoromics, and TopMed. He currently leads the Metabolomics and Proteomics Working Group within ATS. I will be moderating today's podcast. My name is Andrew Bishop, and I'm currently an assistant professor of medicine at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. My current research focuses on metabolomics and chemical lung injury. Uh, Thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules for our first podcast on metabolomics. To start off simple, for our audience that is not familiar with metabolomics, in very simple terms, what is mass spectrometry And how does mass spectrometry facilitate metabolomics analysis? Uh,
1: I can take that and thank you, Andrew, for inviting us. Um, It's my pleasure to to be here with you. So in simple terms, mass spectrometry is a device that can provide energy to a sample, a solid or a liquid or a gas, for instance, uh, to charge and ionize the molecules on the sample, which are then accelerated towards a detector, um, which measures the uh, length of time it takes from applying energy to reaching the detector. Um, And that amount of time is proportional to the mass charge ratio of the ion. So the resultant mass spectrum is the plot for um, all of the detections of these ions and their intensities uh, from the sample. And typically, we may add additional measures Uh, prior um, to the um, mass spectrometry or or during to further um, improve the resolution. Examples might include liquid uh, chromatography of the sample before it reaches the mass spectrometer spectrometer or tandem um, mass spectrometry uh, in which energy is applied multiple times. So um, the mass spectrometry is really the simple but essential tool that allows you to get this um, uh, mass spectrum to evaluate the types of compounds that are, might be available in the sample and um, their intensities, uh, which is um, thought to be uh, correlate with the amount of uh, this, the sample.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bowler. Uh, so let's get a let's get to know our panelists a little better. Could each of you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were introduced or brought into metabolomics studies? Dr. Lasky-Sue, would you like to start?
2: Sure, and um, I wanna just echo Russ's comment. Thanks so much for having me and I'm excited to be here and talking about metabolomics and respiratory disease. Um, As Andrew said, my name is Jessica Lasky-Sue. and my background, really, um, I think, as many of us, stemmed in genetic epidemiology, looking at genetic determinants of disease, and specifically asthma. Um, and and while in that area of, of research, you know, one of the things that I realized, you know, and and really sort of coincides with what we learned about GWAS um, early on, is just the small percentage of heritability that you know any individual genetic variant has. And in thinking about that, um, I remember one time, actually, I was walking down the halls of the Brigham with um, Benji Raby, um, and we were talking about genetics and genomics and, and other omics, and he looked at me and he said, we should look into into metabolomics. I think metabolomics is going to be a place where it goes. So we had this discussion, and that led to my first R01 submission in metabolomics, um, which really has propelled my interest in this area, um, and led me to really see it really as, I think, much more low-hanging fruit in terms of translational medicine and, and its potential there. Um, so that's how I got in the field, and, and now, um, as you alluded to, Andrew, I'm, I'm leading several of the larger initiatives, um, the president of the Metabolomics Society, and um, probably the largest initiative um, of epidemiology, which is the Comets Consortium through the NCI um, that both Russ and I are a part of.
0: Thank you. Dr. Baller.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm Russ Bowler. I'm an MD-PhD. Uh, my MD uh, and uh, specialty training were in pulmonary and critical care medicine. And my PhD has been in the cell biology but I really have a a strong quantitative background in biology uh, and that's how I ended up in the omics fields. So I was introduced to mass spectrometry and metabolomics really through proteomics. Uh, So I had done a lot of research um, on um, uh, proteins such as uh, prion proteins and had a lot of experience doing uh, um, gel electrophoresis and, and 2D gels um, and there was a lot of overlap between um, proteomics and, and math and metabolomics in terms of the mass spectrometry, um, but as I progressed, I uh, since I do have a, an MD, I'm very much interested in uh, how metabolomics relates to uh, diseases, not just um, the uh, abstract um, metabolomics, uh, so I um, realized that the, we needed to create cohorts uh, to collect samples. And that was my primary motivation to creating some large COPD cohorts, collecting samples um, from uh, subjects that I could then run on the mass spectrometer. Um, and so that's kind of a long story of uh, how I got interested in um, uh, metabolomics and, and proteomics. Um, and the, the reason um, uh, I wanted to collect lots of samples is um, because that's how we can kind of use our quantitative, my quantitative biology background, and, and as uh, Jessica mentioned, study the epidemiology using of a disease such as COPD or asthma using um, large numbers of samples um, and the, quote, metabolome um, that we uh, generate from those samples.
0: So you both alluded to this, this you know, starting in other omics fields, genomics and proteomics. So how does metabolomics compare to the other omics analyses like genomics or proteomics? How are they similar? Uh, can you touch on some similarities as well as some differences?
2: Sure, and and I'm happy to start with genetics because I think that's sort of where a lot of us um, have started with a general framework. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important to, to realize, you know, we all sort of talk about the um, sort of genetics, genomics, um, proteomics, small molecules with metabolomics disease. So that sort of general um, central dogma that we all subscribe to. And I think the interesting thing to think about where metabolomics sits in that sort of continuum is that metabolites, some metabolites are very, very strongly correlated to underlying genetics. And so there, there's a connection there um, that we can, we can often very easily identify via MQTLs, et cetera, where we see strong genetic influences on metabolites. But I think the important thing is in where, where it sits, it's really this composite sum of underlying genetics combined with environmental exposures. So we not only can we can detect these underlying genetic influences, but we can also combine that with current environmental influences that may be really important for disease pathogenesis or even describing a current pathological state of a person. You know, so for example, um, you know, if someone just went running. You, you you know you will you can see, you can detect certain things like that in their metabolome. If if I just ate a bunch of cake, um, you will see that in my blood sugar metabolites that they're going to go up, um, and and so that composite sum really ends up being important because it's it's also inherently giving you signals of various different types of confounders like medications people may be taking et cetera um, that you can adjust for and look for. So. This this combination of a composite measure of underlying genetics combined with environmental exposures, some of which are very hard to actually measure and quantitate otherwise, puts it in a a unique and opportune situation for for studying diseases.
1: Thank you, Jessica. I agree with with all of those things. And I'll um, add that of the different omics, maybe metabolomics is perhaps the closest to proteomics, but that is mostly because both proteomics and metabolomics can use mass spectrometry uh, to generate data. Not all of proteomics necessarily uses mass spectrometry, um, but it was certainly started with uh, by mass spectrometrists. Um, the challenge, I think, um, and we'll talk about this later, but The uh, the big difference between metabolomics and the other omics is all of the other omics really can be traced um, on a one-to-one or or one-to-multiple back to the genome. Um, For instance, a transcript can be mapped back to the genome uh, for um, uh, transcriptome analysis. Or a protein is coded uh, by the genome and um, a protein amino acid sequence can um, therefore be mapped back to the genome. We don't have that luxury in uh, metabolomics because metabolomics is a study of small molecules, not proteins, although you can consider peptides in the metabolome. Um, And therefore, you don't have the luxury of necessarily mapping back a um, metabolite to a gene. There's not always that one-to-one in fact, there isn't that one to one correlation. And that makes um, some of the bioinformatics of uh, metabolomics uh, challenging, And that um, uh, we don't necessarily have a library for all of the things that we can measure. Um, I think uh, um, transcriptomics, um, epigenomics, proteomics, we do have that library because the genome, at least for humans, has been um, entirely sequenced. Um, so uh, metabolomics is lagged a little, a little further behind than proteomics and transcriptomics, I think because of some of these bioinformatic challenges. But metabolomics is very similar to genomics, uh, proteomics, and, and other omics in that it is a big data science We're now to the point where we can measure many thousands of features um, uh, simultaneously from one sample. And then we have accumulated lots of uh, libraries of um, metabolite information that we can use to infer biology. And so in that way, metabolomics is is similar to some of the other omics. Thank
0: you. Uh, In the context of a metabolomics analysis, how can a metabolite information add to our understanding of the influences of disease variation? So
1: I I can start, Jessica. go for it. Um, So as Jessica mentioned, I think metabolomics really tells us a lot about the current state of an organism. I consider it the closest Uh, the omics that's closest to a a phenotype. Um, And as Jessica mentioned, uh, it also sums together a lot of uh, different um, features of an organism. Um, For instance, we know that there are genetic influences on the metabolome. There are variants in proteins that affect metabolite levels. But we also know that there are kind of innate biologic differences, for instance, sex that can greatly affect um, the metabolome. But as Jessica mentioned, behavior and environment also greatly affect uh, the metabolome. Um, she mentioned running as one example. Eating is another example. She mentioned uh, a third, certainly respiratory diseases, is smoking. And the metabolome kind of integrates all of these features, the genetics, the behavior, the environmental exposures. Um, and all, all those things can be measured at, at one uh, single time.
2: Yeah, and, and building on uh, what you said, Russ, I, th- I think it, it's exactly sort of my viewpoint. Um, I'll give one example that I think sort of illustrates some of the stuff that you can do with the metabolome that perhaps is, is different than the other omics. Um, as Russ said, you know, you can see a lot about the physiological state of a person just by looking at their metabolome. Um, and sometimes what you then basically can identify are, are clues into pathophysiology that maybe you might not have even expected. And I'll give you an example with asthma that I've now seen over and over and, and I'm, I'm quite, Confident that this is really an accurate finding is when we look, when I look at a lot of different populations of asthmatics, um, whether it's adults, whether it's kids, whether it's pregnant mothers, and then looking prospectively at their children developing asthma, one of the metabolites I see consistently associated with um, a protection against asthma um, is increased caffeine intake or increased theophylline. And when I, I first saw this, I was looking at the data, I'm like, why am I seeing like pregnant mothers have increased levels of theophylline in their system? And I was sort of confused because I'm like, okay, theophylline is a drug for asthma, but it's not really even being used today. And then I, I looked it up and, and sure enough, we saw that caffeine, is, a primary derivative of caffeine is theophylline. And, and biologically, this just made a lot of sense that, um, increased levels of caffeine actually create an environment that is, has theophylline and is actually you know, m- m- making an environment that is amenable to health and, and anti-asthma. And we've now seen this in so many different cohorts, whether it's looking at it prospectively or looking at cross-sectional data of asthmatics, that increased severity is, is associated with decreased amounts of caffeine and theophylline. And it's a perfect example of something that we never would have—I would have never even thought to look at. But then, when you you actually see what's happening and you see this association, it it enables you to sort of infer maybe other hypotheses or ways that you could you could potentially treat or um, you know uh, mechanisms of even metabolic pathways that you could could be looking at more to you know either prevent asthma or reduce the severity of it, et cetera.
0: Those are really great points. And we've both touched on uh, specific respiratory diseases. Uh, so now for our audience, let's dive into some of the recent work by our panelists that focus on metabolomics in these respiratory diseases. Uh, we're gonna start by highlighting on a recent publication by Dr. Bowler, uh, metabolomics, metabolomic profiling reveals sex specific associations in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and emphysema uh, with the first author, Lucas Gillenwater. In this publication, the team assessed metabolomics data generated from plasma samples from two cohorts, COPD gene and spheromics. They identified classes of metabolites that were associated with COPD and were sex specific. They found that individuals individuals with COPD, uh, there were male specific associations with sphingomyelins and female specific associations with acylcarnitines and phosphatidylethanolamines. These findings shed light on sex differences in the molecular dysregulation during COPD pathogenesis. So Dr. Bowler, would you discuss the implications of this paper?
1: Sure, um, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, I think we're um, in research, we have not um, appreciated enough sexual dimorphic manifestations of of chronic diseases such as um, uh, COPD. Um, There are different uh, clinical features between men and women with uh, COPD. Um, Actually, women are more likely to die of COPD. Uh, They tend to have milder disease. Um, And we don't really understand and haven't investigated what are some of the mechanisms uh, between the differences in men and women who have COPD. So I, I think the, the first and biggest implication of our paper is that there may, uh, we identified differences in the metabolome uh, between men and women with COPD that suggest there may be different biologic mechanisms uh, in play. Um, uh, for instance, the acylcarnitines, Um, were um, more significantly different in COPD women compared to men. Um, And as you mentioned, the sphingolipids um, were um, more significantly different in the men than the women. So uh, this would uh, sort of, I think to us, encourage us in the future to um, consider stratifying our analyses by sex for many common diseases. And to start, we uh, begin to explore what these metabolic differences mean um, to the pathogenesis of COPD, um, and certainly have encouraged me, and hopefully will encourage others to um, uh, spend a little more time uh, under, understanding uh, sexually dimorphic um, uh, features in omics research.
0: Dr. Lasky, would you like to add any comments?
2: Yeah, you know, um, just building off of what Russ said, number one, I, I really appreciate the study, Russ, and the whole issue of the sexual dimorphism because we definitely see that. And I, I, I really agree that, you know, in the metabolome, we can identify it much more clearly than we can with a lot of other omics, which I think is, is um, very important. Sort of building on um, some of what Russ has done um, in COPD, I'll just highlight a, a paper that um, we're just about to resubmit at Nature Medicine that got really good reviews. And it's, it's about the same size, about 12,000 um, patients um, with prevalent asthma, um, looking at multiple cohorts. The first one had about 11,000 and then three other subsequent cohorts and one of the things we identified um, very notably just with prevalent asthma was of course, this reduction in steroids among asthmatics. And this isn't surprising, right? We we know, and we probably assume that there's some level of adrenal suppression that happens in an asthma. Um, and we looked into this further really um, with regard to inhaled steroids versus oral steroids, et cetera. And, and what we found was that really um, oral steroids weren't driving these results at all um, because at the time of, of sample collection, most of the asthmatic patients weren't on oral steroids, but that you know, prolonged use of inhaled steroids has a much more profound systemic effect than maybe what we have realized to date. And um, this effect can be seen really, it's, it's really pronounced in, in all steroid pathways And and further, when we looked into this, um, we actually connected this with electronic medical record data and and formal adrenal sufficiency testing and identified that approximately a third of asthmatics who were tested for adrenal suppression had it um, and, and had it without actually even knowing that they had it really leading to this implication that this could be a much larger public health issue than what we've realized to date. And I think it just illustrates the point of another point of something that you can do with metabolomics that is often much more difficult in other omics, and that is this connection to translational medicine. Um, And because a lot of the metabolites that we're looking at actually are measurable and um, often have CLIA-approved tests. Um, We can often look at results in a global metabolomic platform and and directly relate it to the clinic with EMR data, Um, and it it perhaps expedites clinical translation in a way that a lot of other omic data, um, it it may take several years to do. And and so pretty interesting um, just point that I wanna highlight with metabolomics that is, is different compared to some of the other omics. I think proteomics is, is similar in that there are several different clinical tests, tests for proteins as well, but certainly advantages of those are there some of the other omics in terms of clinical translation.
0: Thank you, those are really good points. Um, so on that topic of, of large patient cohorts, which you both are involved in, um, you know, which some are, I think you mentioned, analyzing over 12,000 samples uh, in multiple cohorts. Um, So how how does generating metabolomic data differ from other omics? And uh, what considerations need to be made for uh, metabolomic data? Um, And there'll be a follow-up question to that. Uh, I'd
1: like to add too, um, as uh, Jessica um, mentioned, I mean, 12,000 um, uh, subjects in a metabolomics study is, is one of the larger um, studies ever done. And um, we are st- still playing uh, catch up to some of the genetic studies that have hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but a lot of what I think we need to do in the future is, is build up these larger um, databases that include multiple time points that include diverse um, subjects um, because uh, many of the studies have really only been on people from European ancestry. And we already know that metabolomics is very sensitive to changes in behavior as Jessica mentioned, changes in environment. So we need to include lots of um, uh, samples, lots of time points uh, to better represent the diversity Um, that can occur in the metabolome. And I think this is actually uh, related to one of the challenges of metabolomics that's maybe more relevant than, for instance, genetic research, and that because there's so many potential influences um, on the metabolome, you have to accurately record and think about in your study designs um, ha- how those influences are going to be recorded and controlled for. And examples include what time of day, because we know there are diurnal patterns of, of certain metabolites and hormones. Uh, whether or not a patient is fasting is, is extremely important uh, to the metabolome. But also what type of samples are you collecting? Are you collecting plasma or serum? You know, When was the last time the patient uh, smoked a cigarette? On the age of the patient, there's uh, uh, the metabolome changes and for instance, postmenopausal versus premenopausal women. So all these factors need to be carefully controlled for and uh, reported and then um, uh, to better understand variation. And then there are also technical factors that I think are important that are maybe less important in genetics such as who was drawing the sample? What protocol did they draw the sample under? Are they using um, uh, identical protocols? In our research, we found that there's often a um, large amount of variation that's explained by the clinical center. And you don't necessarily see that in genetics where you can really abuse DNA and still get a good sequence out of it. You can't do that for samples that are undergoing metabolomics uh, analysis. So those, to me, are some of the um, the challenges um, for us, and also the considerations um, when you're analyzing the data. You need to think about those variables.
2: Russ, I think uh, I couldn't agree more with so many of those points. You know, I think the idea that you can abuse, um, you know, uh, blood collection when you're looking at genetics and and it's so much the opposite with metabolomics that really having, having consistent SOPs of collect, and protocols for collecting samples, freezing them right away to prevent sample degradation, carefully getting information on fasting status, et cetera, is imperative. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is the issue that inherently me- global metabolomic profiling is a relative quantification. So if you're doing this in large numbers, you need to think about that a priori because you're going to need to have bridging samples um, and careful control of drift, et cetera, when you're actually generating the data via mass spec. And and that isn't isn't a small thing. That's a really important thing to make sure that when you're generating large, large numbers that you can really utilize all the data together. Similarly with that, you know, unlike genetics where you can pool the data, um, really that doesn't exist for metabolomic data. You know, you can meta-analyze the data, but even when it comes to identifying metabolites, um, the ability to identify metabolites with certain degrees of accuracy will really vary from lab to lab. And you need to be careful about that when it comes to potentially um, Meta-analyzing large sample sizes um, because um, some labs are not really aren't using the same tiered identification quality as another, and and also the nomenclature is not consistent. And so there's a lot of work that's been going on to harmonize um, tiered metabolite identification and harmonize metabolite names. But these are certainly obstacles that I think um, metabolomics has that um, genetics has a benefit of not having to the degree we see in metabolomics.
1: Yeah, there are other challenges too, I think that we've alluded to earlier uh, that include bioinformatic challenges. For instance, we don't know the entire metabolome um, and many of the features um, in a, a metabolomic study might remain unidentif- unidentified. They just remain as a mass charge ratio Uh, And there might be a little uncertainty about exactly what one feature is. Um, So those are um, kind of bigger issues. uh, And there's also a lot of missing data. So we've had to develop statistical techniques to handle missing data in uh, metabolomics uh, research. And then Jessica, I think, really mentioned one of the biggest challenges for us. And she's doing a wonderful job through the Commons Consortium, to address this, um, and that is harmonizing metabolomics data across different uh, platforms. I would say that uh, whole genome sequence data or CHIP data, it's been um, relatively easy to harmonize uh, SNP calls or um, or variant calls in genetics. But it's been a lot more challenging uh, to do that harmonization across different metabolomics platforms. And that I think is what uh, makes um, large multi-cohort uh, studies challenging.
0: We, we moved forward in some of the questions that we were gonna discuss. Um, so can, can we uh, also touch on uh, large efforts in metabolomics with relation to lung disease and respiratory epidemiology? Um, maybe put some discussion out there, maybe describing these cohorts. We, we talked briefly on about comets and TopMed. Um, for our listeners, can we have a little bit of background to start related to those cohorts?
1: Sure, I can start with TopMed, um, which is uh, part of the NHLBI Multi-Omics Initiative. And it's actually... Um, one of the newer features of TopMed, TopMed focused initially on um, whole genome sequencing in um, cohorts, well, uh, in NHLBI cohorts, so I think has um, done um, over 180,000 subjects have had whole genome sequencing. Next, they moved to RNA-Seq. And they've just re- only recently started um, with uh, proteomics, metabolomics, and uh, epigenomics. Um, so the top med, um, a, a, as you mentioned, will use um, um, both primarily plasma and serum, but with some other uh, samples uh, such as lavage fluid uh, in urine. And um, there have been two platforms that I'm aware of so far that have been used one is the Broad. Um, Discovery Metabolomics Platform, and the other is the Global Metabolomics Platform um, that uh, that Metabolon uses. Um, And so, um, as I mentioned in TopMed, this project is just starting. Um, I think they'll have done about, by the end of this year, there should be about 30,000 subjects done uh, between the the Broad and the um, Metabolon platforms.
2: Yeah, and, um, and I'm excited, Russ, that both you and I are a part of TopMed and a part of that effort, which I think is, is really going to be exciting for a lot of respiratory diseases. Um, and in addition to TopMed, um, a consortium that has been around probably the longest for large scale metabolomic epidemiology is the COMETS consortium, which stands for the Consortium of Metabolomic Studies. And really this is a consortium that started via the NCI, Um, to basically provide a mechanism where individuals with epidemiological studies and metabolomic data could come together and look at chronic disease outcomes um, in a way where we can meta-analyze data, et cetera. Um, Currently, the consortium has over 200,000 different um, individuals from various cohorts. I think we're at like 80 or so cohorts. Um, I'm I'm the current chairman of the the, um, Comets Consortium. Through this effort, um, there is a lot of exciting, different things that are happening in terms of meta-analyses. Myself and one of my colleagues are leading um, a BMI meta-analysis, which now has about 125,000 people um, looking at BMI and metabolomics. um, And and we're just finishing up that paper. Um, So certainly the largest scale efforts in metabolomics ever. Russ and I are both involved. Um, we, we started together, um, the Lung Working Group in, um, within COMETS, um, along with Rachel Kelly and Beauches. And, and through this, we are able to basically consolidate all of our different metabolomic studies um, and look at lung-specific disease outcomes. So Russ is looking at, you know, we're not only looking at COPD with regard to COPD gene, et cetera, or asthma with regard to the cohorts that I have, but really looking at the full spectrum from lung function to ATP, to asthma, to ACO, to COPD. And doing this together, um, using uh, a program in COMETS called COMETS Analytics that really enables this meta-analysis and solves a lot of the issues of metabolite identification, harmonization, et cetera, um, because they've harmonized these metabolite IDs across the major labs, including Metabolon, Biocrates, the Broad, etc. So I think this is an exciting effort that I think both Russ and I are, are um, we're in the midst of, and um, excited to see some of the results with very large numbers.
0: I'm going to direct us back to uh, maybe patient-related um, discussion. Um, as we all are members in participating in precision medicine. Uh, do you see a metabolomics contributing to personalized approaches to respiratory disease?
1: I am, um, as I mentioned, I, I think you're a, a person's metabolome is the sum uh, of their genetic background, their behavior, their environment, their age, their sex, etc. And I think, we can use the metabolome um, to have a personalized directed approach. Um, for instance, I, we mentioned uh, acyl carnitines in um, uh, uh, women with COPD. And you could hypothesize that you might be able to use acylcarnitine levels, for instance, to identify um, a targeted therapy uh, in women. Um, and this might uh, carnitines are important nutrients in the body for um, fatty acid transport, for energy production in mitochondria. And um, so it helps us kind of inform a little bit, potentially, about what's going on in this individual. Do they have an azocarnitine deficiency that's leading to altered metabolism, energy production, mitochondrial dysfunction, for instance? So um, that's where I can can see precision measurements being potentially useful for personalized uh, therapies. Of course, all of that is in the future, Um, uh, but the first step is really to identify what those potential targeted pathways and molecules are.
2: Yeah, and I think building on um, what Russ said, I think there are two sort of other approaches I see to personalized medicine with a metabolome, you know, as as we've mentioned over and over because it's this composite of underlying genetics and um, the environment, one thing the metabolome is very amenable to is for diseases that we know are heterogeneous, like COPD and asthma, um, using the metabolome to cluster homogeneous groups of individuals with, you know, very uniform metabolomes and, and looking at those re- relation to potentially subtypes of asthma or COPD and you know, particular treatments. And, and when we do this, we certainly see that there are clearly, at least for asthma, TH2-driven subtypes, non-TH2-driven subtypes, et cetera, which would help inform those personalized approaches. So I think that's one, one approach I would, I would say in terms of a, a direct way that we, this could lead to personalized medicine The other approach I think um, that is perhaps the most low hanging fruit, I I think likely will come um, from these large scale efforts where we have large numbers and let's say we're looking at prevalent asthma or prevalent COPD, and we identify potential exogenous metabolites that are associated with a disease. Um, Perhaps let's say a reduction of disease, et cetera. and, and we look at them, and, and the interesting thing about the metabolome, right, especially on some of the metabolite platforms, is they directly will, will annotate something as a particular drug, right? So you may directly see this is a statin. Um, so my point in this is that the possibility of identifying novel associations between um, perhaps a drug that is already on the market and re- reduction in risk of, of a disease does exist and, and could be important. Um, I think this will come, become more and more, um, will become more and more aware of this as, as, as Russ alluded to, the extent of the exogenous metabolites become more accurately annotated. And we see some of these novel associations, but the fact of the matter is Um, because of this ability to directly identify potential drug targets, it really provides an opportune way to interrogate drug repurposing more specifically. And and I I do expect that as we go along and our our annotation of the metabolome improves and our sample size increases, that we will see some of this low hanging fruit for chronic diseases. you know, it has yet to be determined what those are, but I do think that is a potential very um, important mechanism that could fast track personalized, um, personalized approaches to um, disease.
0: Those are really great points. And um, so on our final uh, discussion point, um, our audience, m- most of our audience may not be involved in metabolomics research, but they may be interested so, if I was a person listening to the podcast today and I'm interested in metabolomics for lung diseases, what are the next steps and how, how can I get involved? I know you both have different backgrounds in relation to metabolomics. So, um, and there's a lot of different areas that are focus areas that are needed on this. We have statisticians, we have the physicians, we have the people running the instruments. Um, so it's a wide range.
2: Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll take this from the statistics epidemiology point of view and maybe Russ, you can take it from the, the medical point of view because I think both are super important. You know um, some com- coming from the epidemiology statistics um, point of view, there likely may be less knowledge about underlying pathophysiology, things like TH2, TH1 inflammation, um, But I think there's a lot of ability to transfer knowledge from general epidemiological principles, um, what we know from statistical genetics, and even translating machine learning approaches into the realm of metabolomics. And and people who are more methodologically oriented, I think this is a really uh, great opportunity um, to dive in and and look at some of these approaches. what I have seen um, today and, and I think is very apparent is there are a lot of approaches that are being used, let's say in genetic epi, that have a, a direct correlate, let's say with metabolomics, right? So we think of polygenic risk scores, well, you know, I've generated metabolomic risk scores. Um, so I think there are certain things that are even low hanging fruit in terms of how you could quantify or measure things. Um, and I think from the point of view of the statistician and epidemiologist, um, that utilizing some of these more innovative analytical approaches that may even be already being used in another field and just transferring them over could be could be a great place for someone to start with that background.
1: So um, I would say that there are lots of opportunities to get involved. And for a physician scientist like myself, um, it's important to expose yourself to What's actually being done, and comments is uh, I think one of the best environments to um, uh, expose oneself to um, um, metabolic kind of epidemiology is, as Jessica mentioned, we have so much data in in that uh, consortium. There's so many op- There's so much opportunity for writing manuscripts and and using. Um, the analytic tools that are available through Comets that it's a great way for a young physician scientist uh, to get involved. And more. most importantly for us, we need to have manuscripts and it's probably one of the quickest way to generate a high impact manuscript would be to um, get involved in Comets. And as Jessica mentioned there, I think you said eighty over 80 cohorts now in Comets. You just need to find... Uh, someone from one of those cohorts um, that can, uh, and then join comments, you know, uh, as, a, as a scientist, uh, and there will be plenty of mentors uh, from those cohorts that can assist you with that. Other methods, I think, for a, a young um, up-and-coming physician scientist would be to look locally at, at your institution, many large universities, have metabolomics cores that may be more kind of targeted um, metabolomics working on particular areas um, and um, meeting with the uh, scientists in that lab as if they're typically PhDs who run the metabolomics labs, but they're always looking for uh, clinical projects uh, to work with. So if there isn't someone, you you could propose a clinical project and work with uh, some of the PhDs running the metabolomics uh, cores. Um, That's a great way to start also. Um, And then finally, my recommendations, and this applies to both statisticians as well as physician scientists, is I think it's always nice to get some hands-on experience on learning how metabolomics data are generated and analyzed and there are a couple places that run courses. Some of them are more theoretical. Uh, for instance, University of Alabama, um, and then there's some more hands-on exp- uh, courses. like and these are typically week for three to five-day courses. Um, at the University of Colorado, we have um, have run one that's a hands-on where you're actually working with the preparing sample, working with the mass spectrometer, and generating your own data. And I think that's a great way to really, Andrew, as you can probably attest to, understand what metabolomics data are, how they're generated, and and some of the biases that can be introduced into the uh, metabolomics data.
0: I agree. The hands-on experience is is key to really understanding a a lot of metabolomics research. well, that, that was our last discussion point for today. Uh, so I'd like to thank both our panelists for their time and, and their insight into metabolomics analysis and, and lung diseases. Um, on behalf of, of ATS in the section on genetics and genomics, uh, we completed our first metabolomics podcast. And so again, I thank you both for participating.
1: Thank you very much. It was my, my pleasure.
2: Yeah, my pleasure.